Hey everybody! Sorry, trying to get my last broadcast together here. Twitter, uh, Facebook Live has been completely, just absolutely stinking on my phone. I have no idea what's wrong. First, there's the volume problems. Now it won't go at all. The last three times I've tried to start, it just freezes right away. Maybe my uh, Facebook app does not like uh, iOS 11. Anyway, hi everybody! Welcome to our final session of The Treason of Isengard. This is session number 16 uh, on The Treason of Isengard, which I think equals the number of sessions we had on uh, The Return of the Shadows, so that works out uh, really well. Um, we're going we're gonna to get through everything, and, uh, and that's going to be awesome. Tonight, tonight's class is called Theoden's Welcome and Aragorn's Doom. Uh, I love how, uh, the, how the book ends with the doom of Aragorn. Um, so, uh, anyway, let's, uh, let's, let's dive straight into things here. Oh, no, wait, wait, we can't dive straight into things because there are two important announcements. So announcement number one, um, we have opened registration for Mythmoot, uh, here today. So, uh, uh, Mythmoot is, um, uh, is going to be in June, June 21st to 24th, down in Leesburg, Virginia. Uh, this is Mythmoot 5. Uh, it's going to be really fantastic. So uh, I hope that uh, you'll be able to join us. Um, we have our early bird pricing going on now for the next uh, couple months, I think. So uh, you can... Uh, if you can get on that, then uh, you can save uh, some money on the registration there, too. Uh, remember that the registration for Mythmoot is all-inclusive. It includes your um, well, it includes everything except lodging, but you can get discounted lodging with it. Um, but it includes all your your the, the, the conference and all of your meals and everything else. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really good. Anyway, so Mythmoot. It's going to be awesome. Um, the other thing, of course, the other announcement is don't forget to vote. We are in the voting now. Uh, we only have just a few more days left in the voting uh, to choose what our next book is going to be. Uh, the fi- I'm, I'm excited about the finalists. Uh, we have a, a couple. Uh, in fact, every single... Every single book, almost every single book among the five finalists has been a finalist before. Uh, so one of our uh, one of our frequent bridesmaids is going to finally become a bride here this time around. Uh, so that should be fun to see. Um, uh, the five books that have been nominated, just in case you haven't seen this yet or if you're not part of this, um, are, of course, The War of the Ring, the next book of, uh, of the history of The War of the Rings. Uh, that I was kind of guessing that was going to make the finalists, uh, and then uh, the uh, besides that, the other four are, uh, and of course one of these is 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 definitely the the one we'll do next because we don't do two books by the same author in a row. Uh, so our next book after the Treason of Isengard will be one of the four following: American Gods by Neil Gaiman, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Uh, Le Morte d'Arthur by Sir Thomas Mallory, or To Say Nothing of the Dog by Connie Willis. Those are the four other finalists. Um, uh, should be should be really should be really great. Um, so uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, that's uh, that's going to be going to be a lot of fun. What, whichever one we end up on is going to be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I am really. Ex- I, I have to say, I am. Uh, I am both excited and a little bit nervous about the prospect of Lamort d'Arthur winning. I would love to do a close reading of Lamort d'Arthur, um, but that would be a big project. Lamort d'Arthur is long, and 
and to really appreciate it, we'd have to read it fairly slowly. Uh, so, um, I don't even know how many weeks we would take on the Mort d'Arthur because I'm not skipping stuff. We're going to read the entire thing, which is quite long and in Middle English, and it's going to be great. Uh, so, I, I'm, again, I'm really excited about this. Um, and, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's going to be like a, a 30, 35-week project, I bet, uh, if, we, uh, if, we, if we do that one. Uh, and, yeah, James, we'll, we'll do it in Middle English, and I'll teach you how to, I'll, 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 I'll teach you how to pronounce it, because uh, Maori pronunciation is actually even different from Chaucerian pronunciation because the vowel shift was already going on by the time Sir Thomas Mallory was writing in the 15th century so uh it's uh it's really fun anyway it would be it would be it, it would be a great project but it would be a bit of an investment uh so uh so that would all be that would all be cool and f- yeah oh man so many things i would like to do with that but again huge project uh the others would be um would be would be would be great fun uh i get both Hitchhiker's Guide and American Gods have both been finalists at least three times before, uh, and uh, any of those would be um, would be very good. T- to say nothing of the dog, I've never read. I'm I'm interested in it. Uh, I know uh, Dr. Powell has spoken very highly of it, and I'm I'm looking forward to reading that one uh, if that one ever gets nominated or if that one ever wins the election. Uh, but uh, but I haven't read it yet. I'm kind of saving it actually. I was I was going to read it, but I'm like no no no. I'm going to wait and because if it wins, I wanna I wanna I wanna be reading it for the first time. So. Um, yeah, so Yana, it, it would just be it would just be the first, the Hitchhiker's Guide. Uh, the, the first one is the one that we would uh, that we would do if that one wins, because then you'd have to you'd have to elect the second one uh, to to sort to to follow it up. So, yeah, that's the way that that would work. All right. Anyway, so this is just an encouragement. If you haven't voted yet, please do go and vote. You should have an email uh, from Dr. Powell. You should have received a couple of emails from Dr. Powell actually uh, sending you the link uh, to the page. Um, uh, for the uh, for the voting, so uh, I, I I commend that to you. Now, now with no further ado, now we are finished with the further ado. Let's get down to the treason of Isengard. All right. Um, so we were coming to the end of the white. Rider chapter. So we've been looking at the Treebeard chapter uh, and you know, the, the the final discovery of Ents, right? And how the whole concept of Ents uh, grew. M- one of my favorite moments from our last class was the discussion of the um, uh, the the elves began it stuff, right? And and looking at how that fit into the originals, the the original sort of logical sequence of that paragraph. That was probably my favorite slide from last time, um, as it really helped me to understand what Treebeard means when he says elves began it, um, which I'd never, I think, fully understood before. Um, so we have the two prophecies. Now, these are the two prophecies, the, the two uh, verses that uh, Gandalf conveys from Galadriel, right? Um, okay. Uh, her message to Aragorn. Elfstone, Elfstone, bearer of my green stone, in the south under snow a green stone thou shalt see. Look well, Elfstone, in the shadow of the dark throne, then the hour is at hand that long hath awaited thee. Okay, so uh, that's an interesting prophecy, right? Um, 
In the south under snow, a green stone thou shalt see. Huh. What does that mean? He's going to see... So he's he bears the green stone. He's got the elf stone. He's going to see another green stone. And when he does... Look well, elf stone. So like, look well for it or look well at it. In the shadow of the dark throne. Then the hour is at hand that long hath awaited thee. So is it... In the shadow of the dark, is that where the green stone? Is that like a hint about where the green stone is going to be? Or is he supposed to, like, when he sees the green stone, then he's supposed to look well in the shadow of the dark throne? Is he going to see something else there? And whose dark throne is it? I mean, is it, like, the dark throne? It's not like capital D, capital T, dark throne. It's not like Sauron's throne, right? Presumably. Uh, maybe it is. It's a little unclear, right? Um, uh, then the hour is at hand that long hath awaited thee. And we don't know what that hour is, right? Um, But the fact that Aragorn is now being told of an hour that has long awaited him being finally at hand is interesting, right? Um, One of the things we've been kind of looking for is when when is the return of the king going to come come in, right? Um, you know, when are we going to get the Return of the King theme? Because we were seeing that even, you know, of course, in the original outlines and stuff, yes, he was going to meet his Tirith, but no, he was uh, he was never planning to be king. There was no prediction that he would be king. He was going to end up as the leader of Minas Tirith, sort of by popular acclaim and much to Boromir's chagrin, um, you know, when the Lord of Minas Tirith died in, in the battle. But he, you know, there, there, there was no prophecy. And even after the war, he was just going to set himself up as Lord in Minas Ithil, right? Um, so that was, that was where we had been for a while. We began to see that the the place where I'm wondering, and again, we talked about this a little bit last time, the place where I'm wondering if the, this Return of the King uh, uh, co- concept, theme, really first begins to sort of show its face is uh, um, when uh, when there's that line about the temptation that we couldn't understand. Like, you know, about the, the, the how he's supposed to resist some temptation and we don't know what tem- like who's tempting him to do what exactly. Um, that sense of um, uh, that's that sense of of um, strong. Dis- so it's not just like it's my plan to go to Minas Tirith, you know, to help out because they might need help. Right. Um, to now he has a really strong desire to go to Minas Tirith. Um and I guess that's the temptation not to go straight. And that was our best guess. At least that was my best guess at what the temptation was. The temptation to, to just hair off towards Minas Tirith instead of, you know, like going down to Idris first, which doesn't seem like the straight road to the place where he wants to be, right? But even his wanting to be there is relatively new. So the drawing of Aragorn towards Gondor has already uh, seemed to elevate this whole question, as to, to elevate the significance of his his return, right, of his, of his coming to Minas Tirith. Uh, and now we have this, uh, the hour is at hand that long hath awaited thee. We're not told here what that hour is, but it is some hour, right? And, uh, and Tony, I agree, the Dark Throne could, the Dark Throne could well be, um, 
Denethor's black stone seat. I mean, there are several several thrones that he's going to have access to eventually, right? Any one of which could be dark. So it needn't be dark in the sense of evil, right? It needn't be like in the in in the Black Tower. Uh, it could be something like the throne of Minas Tirith. Um, in the shadow of the dark throne. Look well in the shadow of the dark throne. Huh. Um, we'll come back to this on our last slide. Anyway, now her prophecy to Legolas. Greenleaf, Greenleaf, bearer of the elven bow, far beyond Mirkwood, many trees on earth grow. Thy last shaft, when thou hast shot under strange trees, shalt thou go. Okay, first of all, notice the meter of these poems. Notice how we just spent quite a while talking about that first poem, and I never even mentioned that. Um, what's the meter? This doesn't sound normal, right? Doesn't this doesn't this verse sound different? Certainly different from any verse we've heard Galadriel utter before. Very. I mean, just think of the the difference in the rhythm between this green leaf, green leaf, bearer of the elven bow, far beyond Mirkwood, many trees on earth grow. Right? Think how different that sounds from I sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew. Right? Very, very different. What's the pattern? How do these how does the rhythm of these lines work? Can you hear it? It's a little irregular. It is rhythmic. It's not like free verse or something. Greenleaf. Greenleaf. Bearer of the elven bow. Now this should sound a little bit familiar, at least, right? Um, a little bit familiar to those of you... So those of you who have been uh, doing Exploring the Lord of the Rings with me have uh, heard lines that sound not exactly like this, but kind of like this for a little while. Yes, uh, James, uh, Lubeck, you're right. It's trochaic instead of iambic. Uh, Iambic heptameter or uh, an iambic... a tetrameter line followed by an iambic trimeter line, so four beats and then three beats, or a seven-beat line. That's the standard elf meter. That's the meter in which uh, Galadriel's song is, I sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew. Um, I sang of wind, a wind there came, and in the branches blew. That's how the Nimrodel poem goes. Um, And cursed the faithless ship that bore him far from Nimrodel the most regular iambic line I can think of. Uh, I mean, that's like the line that I give. I used to give that line in English 101 as an illustration of how iambic meter works, because it's so perfect. Um, And cursed the faithless ship that bore him far from Nimrodel. Um, That's elf meter. That's the standard uh, meter. This is different. This is trochaic. The the strong syllable is first. Greenleaf. Greenleaf. Bearer of the elven bow. Far beyond Mirkwood, many trees on earth grow. It's it's much less regular, certainly much less regular than the than the Nimrodel line I was just quoting, and it's trochaic. That to me is really interesting. The fact that it's trochaic is really interesting. One thing that I noticed, uh, and I noticed this for the first time when I was teaching my Tolkien's poetry class in the Signum MA program, um, and we went through all of Tolkien's minor poetry from you know, what he wrote as a teenager, the fragment, surviving fragment of what we have from when he was a teenager, uh, all the way through his latest stuff. Uh, and we looked carefully at all of the poems in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And um, 
one of the things that we noticed that I had never noticed until I gathered all those poems in one place and began to kind of look at them in groups. Um, I, uh, I, I, I noticed then that most of the, what I called rhymes of lore are trochaic. Most of the things which are either prophecies or, um, uh, you know, r- rhymes that are designed to help you remember things, right? Um, the, most of the one ring to rule them all, um, most of the ring verses trochaic. That is the part that was written by the elvish lore masters, right? Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dark for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, right? You can hear the trochaic meter that sounds similar to this, far beyond Mirkwood, many trees on earth grow. Hear the similar uh, rhythm there? Of course, the cool thing about the ring verse is it shifts when we get Sauron's lines, because it quotes Sauron's lines, right? Uh, One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. It's iambic, right? So it shifts to iams, sinister, evil iams, right? And then back to Troki, in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. Uh, Anyway, okay. Uh, So... She sends these trochaic verses because it's a prophecy, right? Okay, so Greenleaf, Greenleaf, bearer of the elven bow, far beyond Mirkwood, many trees on earth grow. Thy last shaft, when thou hast shot, under strange trees shalt thou go. Um, Brandon, I agree. Is this, um, um, is this a prophecy of Legolas' death? Thy last shaft? It sounds a little ominous, doesn't it, Brandon? Um, yeah, Brian was just asking the same thing. Uh, when he shot his last shaft, like ever, uh, he shall go under strange trees. I mean, is that a euphemism, <laughs> right? Uh, like he shall go to a forest. That, you know, he's going to go to the he's going to go to the big forest out west, right, where elves go. After. I mean, it's it's a little bit on. It's a little bit uncertain, right? Veronica, it does make me wonder, right? Of course, I, I, I think, too, of the tour of Fangorn that uh, that Legolas is going to look forward to at the end of The Lord of the Rings, right? Is that what's in his mind here? Under strange trees? Is that so he's going to go to Fangorn? Um, so thy last shaft when thou hast shot under strange trees shalt thou go? Does that simply boil down to... And when the war is over, you're going to get to go to Fangorn for, on vacation, right? Is that... Is, I mean, that would be... A slightly anticlimactic interpretation of of her prophecy, right? It sounds a little more ominous than that. It does sound like a prophecy of his death. Um, Far beyond Mirkwood, many trees on earth grow. Does, however, make it sound like an exploration thing rather than a death thing. Um, It could be, Brian, it could be the strange trees of Valinor. I mean, that would be totally, that would be totally legitimate, right? Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. You may remember the final version of this prophecy, right? The message she's going to send to Legolas in the published text. Um... Long, uh, long, you know, uh, Legolas Greenleaf, long under tree, enjoy thou hast lived, beware of the sea. 
right? If thou hearest the cry of the gull on the shore, thy heart shall not rest in the forest. Well, shoot, I'm losing a syllable. Shall not rest in the forest no more. No, that's not how it goes. I'm forgetting the last line. I'm, I'm, I'm screwing up the last line. But anyway, it's something like that, right? Uh, somebody please correct me there. Um, um, but um, anyhow, so... The final prophecy is going to be about this. is is going to be about his ending, in a sense, right? His desire to go over the sea, but it's going to be it's it's going to be about him, not not exactly something that happens to him. It's going to be foretelling sort of the changing of his heart. Thy heart shall rest in the forest no more. Okay. Um, okay. Um. Yeah, yeah, Brandon, my first version did sound a lot like Gaffer Gamgee, right? It's like the Gamgee family version of uh, of Legolas's uh, prophecy. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, Tony, I agree. This sounds like an invitation, or even again, it's a, a, a prediction, right? Thou shalt, you know, shalt thou go? Um, that he's gonna he's gonna expand his horizons a bit, right? Which is an interesting thing for her to predict. Uh, I mean... With this verse, I feel like it kind of goes in one of two ways, right? Either it's really... It's like, you know, ominous. It's foretelling his death. Or I would kind of want to say, so what? Like, so you're going to get to go around and see the world a little bit. Like, okay. Like... Why does he need to know that? Um, Thy heart shall then rest in the forest no more. Then, yes, James, that's the syllable I was missing. Thy heart shall then rest in the forest no more. Okay. See, I knew, I, 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 I remembered that that was... I remembered that it, it had the right number of syllables. Okay, okay. Um, anyway. Uh... So yeah, I'm not quite sure where we're going with Legolas here. But keep in mind, Legolas has been... Legolas has been a bit of a cipher so far, right? I mean, there's there's not... he His best moments... So I mean, he's accomplished some things, right? Like shooting down the Nazgul's mount is the main thing that he's accomplished. But, you know, he had kind of a a moment, a character moment up at Carothras, right, in his, like, well, his sort of verbal sparring with Gandalf, but um, other than that, he's been kind of unclear. His name is recycled from Legolas Greenleaf of Gondolin, right, right the, the far-sighted. Um, so he he's this, this wood elf prince who wasn't in The Hobbit, right? Um, I mean, he is sort of retroactively, right, but he wasn't in The Hobbit book. Um, so Tolkien has invented this new elf character, given him a Gondolindrim name, um, and sent him along in the party. But remember, he was just going to pack up and leave when they got to Lothlorien. Um, and event he was going to get sort of shoehorned back down. But you remember, there was no role for him in the, in the projection, the outline projections. It's not like he was going to play a, a significant part in the... Uh, um, in the overthrowing of, you know, of the siege of Minas Tirith or anything like that. So 
there's not really been any clear purpose for him. So, and I think perhaps the, the, in that sense, the very fact that he gets something, right? That he gets some kind of message, uh, from, uh, from, uh, Galadriel and something is predicted about him. That seems like kind of a big deal. Even the sort of more tame interpretation, right? The like, and after the war is over, you'll go on vacation interpretation. Even that is kind of, I mean, for Legolas, that's kind of a big deal. He's never done that, right? He's never been, he's never traveled around. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Brian, he, he really was, he really has been kind of the token elf, uh, in the fellowship so far. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, and Yana, I agree. It's not like Legolas's character is ever going to be huge in the book, right? I mean, it is going to get developed more than it has been to this point, but uh, um, but you're right. I mean, he, 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 he plays... I mean, Tolkien himself said that Legolas accomplished least of all the Nine Walkers. Um, but uh, anyway... A, uh, a line that some people were fond of quoting uh, back during the Orlando Bloom days. Anyway, um, here's an outline projection of what's going to happen when they get to Edoras. Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli reach Edoras on the morning of January 31st. That afternoon, Merry and Pippin go with Enns to Isengard. They enter Theoden's halls. Theoden greets Gandalf dubiously, as herald of trouble. Shadowfax had been reported coming from the west through the gap and fleeing away north. They feared Gandalf would return. Then Aemir had come riding back with strange news concerning Gandalf's fall. That, said Theoden, was too much to hope, it seems, for now Gandalf returns and worse tidings follow. Against this paragraph was written in the margin at the same time as the text, A messenger from Minas Tirith is present. Okay, so one thing, just focusing on that last comment there, we can see trying to balance the siege thing, right? Remember, the original concept was just one single battle, right? One single sort of theater of action. After things resolved around the breaking of the Fellowship, we were going to get down where everyone is converging on Minas Tirith, right? Uh, Originally, of course, it was Aragorn and Boromir coming down, Merry and Pippin coming down with Treebeard, Legolas and Gimli coming down with Gandalf, but all of them arriving, and Minas Tirith besieged by Saruman on one side, by Mordor on the other side, or really by Minas Ithil on the other side. I mean, it's Morgul, of course. Um, and that was and that was the whole thing. Now we've begun to split that, right? This idea of we're going to fight with Saruman over here, you know, on the on the Western Front before we uh, go down to Minas Tirith is just beginning to grow. Uh, so you can see him beginning to think about the relationships here, both sort of chronological and geographic relationships of the, of the movements and, and and the timing, but also of sort of the political. Relationships. If this is not just a one, uh, a one-stage story, right? If it's not just we we move straight down to the siege of Minas Tirith, then what's happening and how are the Rohirrim and the 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 Andorians 
Actually, I think it's Gondor now, finally. Um, how are how are the Rohiroth and the Gondorians actually connected and related, right? So this idea of having the messenger from Minas Tirith come in uh, is, uh, uh, is, is interesting in that regard, right? Um, now, we have, of course, no Wormtongue yet. Wormtongue is nowhere in the initial projection. Theoden is resistant to Gandalf all on his own, right? Um, And that's really interesting, right? Really interesting that Theoden's resistance to Gandalf, that many of the things that he says to Gandalf under Wormtongue's influence later on, right, in the published text, he originally says off his own bat, right? He's uh, he's, uh, just hostile to Gandalf. Now, one thing I would say, this doesn't strike me as terribly strange, right? Um, One of the things which is still true in the published text is the resistance of the Rohiroth to, you know, the Rohirrim as they will, of course, eventually be, um, to, you know, sorcery, witchcraft, elvish trickery and all that kind of thing, right? Um, anyone who's Dwimmer crafty, they're, 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 they're going to look a little uh, askance at, right? So uh, it doesn't seem to me in that sense very strange that he's going to be dubious about Gandalf. He's not exactly hostile, but he is dubious. They feared Gandalf would return. They don't know if they can, they don't know if they can trust him. Um, and the uncertainty... The uncertainty of Gandalf's role is also legitimate. Like, you can see, this is not just Theoden being a bad guy, right? Theoden being hostile and, 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 and resistant. Gandalf comes and says, Saruman is your enemy, and then all, now all of a sudden they're at war with Saruman. That could be, of course, because Saruman was their enemy all along, and um, and Gandalf just warned them, Right, uh, and and put them on their guard against somebody whom they had thought their friend, but of course it is also possible that Gandalf is stirring up trouble. Right, they didn't have any trouble with Saruman before that point. Um, they had reasons to believe that Saruman was their friend, um, so it's not irrational for them to ask the question: Is d- did Gandalf foment the problems with Saruman? Right, um, did he go to? to Saruman first and say, hey, the Rohirrith are hostile. You should attack them while you can and then go to the Rohirrith and be like, Saruman is hostile. You should attack him while you can and now they're both at war and Gandalf is the troublemaker, right? That's not impossible. Um, And Theoden, who does not seem to know Gandalf well and who seems to share the suspicion, which remember, that suspicion of strange and marvelous things is in the very, for, you know, that that scene with Eomer and Eothine and Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, that's really our first meeting with Rohirrim, right? That's the first, uh, the Rohiroth, it's they still are, excuse me. Um, that's the first time that we see them. That's the note that gets established there, sort of the, the sort of the first, um, the first note of their, of their, of their culture, right? And Theoden's depiction is consistent 
with that. Now, uh, Nancy asks why Gandalf would do that. I don't know, Nancy, but that's the point, right? You never can tell what these wizards are going to do, right? Who can tell what, how it might fit in with the designs of his wizardry, right? Um, uh, because, again, that's the whole point, is that these... They're not normal. They're not like normal people. So you can't even you can't even uh, assume they have like normal motivations, right? Um, so uh, uh, so yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Brandon, exactly. That it does. It doesn't look good, right? This it, um, it, it could be that the the wizards are in league with each other, right? In some way. I mean, you you just you can't know, right? Um, and again, he's not hostile. He's not like aggressive against Gandalf. He's just dubious, right? He's cautious. He's uncertain, and he's not taking Gandalf for granted. And that seems to work. Tony says that this all seems very Norse uh, in its theme. I can, I can, I can see that. Um, I think that the again the way that Theoden is acting, yeah. You know, is it kind of like maybe you know a king or a lord or Thane in a um, you know, in a, uh, like a Norse myth or, you know, one of the Germanic heroic stories might act. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Um, all right, let's keep going. But news came that orcs were pouring out of Isengard and that men of the Middlemarch, whom Saruman had long subjected, were coming up. We cannot hope long to hold the river, said Theoden. Eomir has gone thither with what men could still be spared. And now, as we are beset in the west, there comes dire news indeed. The whole of Rune the Great, the endless east, is in motion. Under the command of the Dark Lord of Mordor, they move from the far north even to the south. Minas Tirith is beset. The fierce dark men of the south, the Haradwaith, Harwan, Sil Harrows, men of Sun Harrowland, men of Harrowland. I love this talking like, we now interrupt this narrative to play with names, right, and see what sounds best. Have come in many ships, and fill the Bay of Belfalas, and have taken the Isle of Tolfalas. They have passed up the Anduin in many galleys, and out of Mordor others have crossed at Elostirian, which, remember, is Osgiliath, which he's, whose name he's changed to Elostirian for now. A tide of war rolls beneath the very walls of Minas Tirith. They have sent us urgent prayer for help, and we cannot give it. Yet if Minas Tirith falls, then the dark tide will sweep over us from the east. So, this is Theoden saying most of this stuff, right? This is a, this is a really bad, bad situation. So you'll notice how, first of all, we have elaborated the situation at Minas Tirith, right? We have elaborated the... Uh, uh, the, the siege so that, um, uh, we have, um, it's not just a two pronged thing, right? It's not just Saruman and his orcs, the army out of Minas Morgul meeting at Minas Tirith. Um, not only are we introdu- are we splitting this into two different theaters of war, but we are also, he's, he's conceiving of them as, different groups of allies, right? We get the the men of the Middle March who are going to be eventually the Dunlendings, right? And then we we get the the people of the east and uh the the ships coming up the Anduin for the first time. Um Jennifer points out that Theoden is very well informed, which is certainly true. Um 
Presumably, Jennifer, he's heard this stuff from the messengers from Minas Tirith, right? I, I, one wonders if perhaps that's why they got they got uh, written into the margin, right? So that uh, Theoden could get his information here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Now, Brian, I agree. This does seem to be setting up Minas Tirith to be the climactic battle of the war. Brian points out that it wasn't always obviously the climax of the war. Um, yeah, I agree. Remember that there was going to be that big battle before the Black Gate, um, and it seemed quite possible that Minas Tirith was going to be under siege, that siege was going to get broken, but then a great battle was going to be fought before the Black Gates. And so, yeah, especially since that is kind of a recapitulation of the Last Alliance, right, that it seems like that might actually have been the big uh, battle, though, of course, the breaking of the siege was a really big deal. Um, yeah, and Tony, I agree. We can also see him working out more of the map as we go through, right? That's one of the things that I agree is very striking about the situation here. But of course, Theoden spelling all this stuff out, it all begins to uh, look kind of different, right? Um, now it's, if we don't do something here in Rohan, then Minas Tirith is going to be besieged. So now, now it's the effort to prevent Minas Tirith from being besieged on all sides, which is how it always originally was, right? Um, Gandalf speaks words of comfort. All that can be done is to do one deed at a time and go forward and not look back. Let us assail Saruman, and then if fortune is with us, turn and face east. There is a hope. Something may happen in west. He does not openly name Ents. Gandalf begs for the gift of Shadowfax. Theoden says yes. That will at least ensure Gandalf's escape when all else fall. Oh, man. Ouch. Gandalf does not lose temper. That's a burn right there, right? Yeah, you can have the fastest horse, so then that way you can get away while everybody else dies at the very least, right? I mean, ouch. He says there will be no escape for anyone. Gandalf does, presumably. But he wishes for gift, as he will not take Shadowfax into great peril. As he, Sorry, as he will take Shadowfax into great peril, silver against black. Notice, again, the parallel between Gandalf and the Black Rider, right? And the Wizard King, right? Silver against black. The ceremony of gift. Gandalf casts aside gray robe and becomes White Rider. He bids Theoden arm, old as he is, and follow with all left who can bear arms. The rest shall pack and prepare to flee to the mountains. Um, yeah, Brandon, I agree. Something may happen... In West sounds like it should refer to Frodo. It doesn't, right? Um, because of course that's not in the West. That's in the East. But that whole sense of like that that uh, Brandon the there is a hope leads us to think that, right? But that's not where he's going here. He's just still thinking about tactics, right? He's thinking about the outcome of their battle with Saruman. Um, Yeah. Um. Good. Um. 
Tara, where's the word you're referring to? I'm I'm spacing here. I'm overlooking it. Um anyway. Oh, in the previous slide. Okay, well that that would explain why I didn't find it. They have sent us urgent prayer for help. Yeah, it's the word prayer that Tara is interested in, given the lack of religious overtones in this whole in this whole speech. Um I, I that I think just in the in that context is emphasizing like sending like they they're not just it's not just a request it's not a, co- a request it's not a command it is a supplication right they are they are urgently praying for help um yeah 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 good thanks uh, Tara for helping me find that um okay. Fix something here quickly, so I can see people's comments better. There we go. Um, Carson thinks that begs is an interesting word here too. Of course, on a similar vein, that but but in this case, Gandalf begging uh, for the gift of shadow facts. Um, I don't know, Carson. I'm not sure how much desperation that is meant to imply by Gandalf here. I mean, are we really? That word could be used sort of more formally. Right, um, but uh, it could just allude to sort of the earnestness of his um, uh, of his, you know, request. Um, but uh, yeah, Brandon, I think that Gandalf does not lose temper means doesn't get ticked off when Theoden smacks him in the face verbally, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and John, I agree, grumpy. Theoden is definitely grumpy, right? He's not just suspicious. He's also actively cranky. Um, that seems... That seems uh, interesting. Again, in the context of where he's going to go, right? Still projecting here. By his help and Aragorn, the Isengarders are driven back. This is the... This is the summary of the battle in the west. So remember, no Helm's Deep yet, right? The army is just going to march over to the for- to the fords of Eisen, and in front of the fords, that's where the, the battle is going to be joined. So, by his help in Aragorn, the Isengarders are driven back, the camp of the Rohirroth. But Isengarders are across the river. In the morning they awake and look out in wonder. A wood stood where none had been between the Isengarders and the west. There is clamor and confusion. Vast columns of vapor are seen rising from Isengard, and the rumor of strange noises and rumblings. The Isengarders are driven into the river. Those who cross are suddenly assailed by the trees which seem to come to life. Only a few escape, fleeing southward to the Black Mountains. Okay, so finally, Great Burnham Wood to High Dunsinane Hill has come, right? The uh, the the intervention of the wood, this sort of fulfillment of um, Tolkien's sort of childhood Shakespearean fantasy, right, is uh, uh, has has finally has finally come to pass, um, and this is pretty cool. So we're having two stages of this battle. Right, and remember, it's just an open. But it's not a siege. Uh, it's uh, it's 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 not you know it's it's not an assault. It's an open battle on the battlefield. So stage one, 
Gandalf, Aragorn, and, you know, the rest of Theoden's warriors come in and they reinforce the Rohirrith that are out there and they meet the enemy on the field and they win. Um, They drive them back, but they don't drive them all the way across the river. So we end at the end of that day of battle uh, with the Rohirrith camp. Having driven them back, they camp and the Isengarders are between the Rohirrith and the river, right? And then in the morning, there's a forest that comes in and surrounds them. Um, Tony says maybe this battle was going to be like the Battle of Malden, except this time the English win. You know, it could be that 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 it's it's quite possible that the Battle of Malden uh, is kind of the picture that Tolkien had in his head when he was thinking of this battle originally. It does sound a little bit like it, doesn't it, Tony? Um, and and. I, we don't know yet for sure what the strange noises and rumblings and things are. Uh, remember, Tolkien himself was asking, how are the Ents going to tackle Isengard? Right? He was still asking himself that question when last we saw. But we're getting here some kind of hint that something is going on. Uh, the Ents and the trees themselves are taking a very active role. Now we get to Isengard. The victorious forces under Eomir and Gandalf ride to the gates of Isengard. They find it a pile of rubble, blocked with a huge wall of stone. On top of the pile sit Merry and Pippin, meeting of Treebeard and Gandalf. How did the Ents overcome Isengard? See, he still doesn't know, right? Uh, and I love that. He first, he was asking before, how, how can the Ents tackle it? And remember, one problem with the Ents tackling Isengard? How many Ents are there? Two! There were three, but one of them's gone, right? So there are only two Ents left, and one of them's super sleepy. So the, it was not at all clear how basically Treebeard by himself, maybe with the help of Leaflock, uh, would uh, would be able to, to take on Isengard. So he was uncertain about how that was going to go. So he gives the answer, right? The gates of Isengard are a pile of rubble with Merry and Pippin sitting on top before he even fully answers the question. Okay, so he discovers this picture, right? This picture of the ruin of Isengard with Merry and Pippin sitting on top. Um, But he still doesn't know how it got that way. How did the Ents overcome Isengard? They opened sluice gates at North End and blocked the outlet near the Great Gate. First they watched all the night, seeing more and more orcs, etc., pour out of Isengard. Then they simply broke away in at North End and spied and found Saruman was was left nearly all alone in his tower. They broke the door and stairway to the tower and then withdrew. At North End, they let in the river Isen, but blocked its outflow. Soon all the floor of the circle was flooded to many feet deep. Then, while some kept guard, the rest fell on the rear of the battle. Bringing us to the trees here again. Um, Carson, yeah, the rest does seem to... I think that he is already multiplying the Ents here. Um, Even the fact, uh, Carson, that he says, how did the Ents overcome Isengard... um, I mean, technically, Treebeard and Leaflock are two, right? So they would be still be the Ents. But it sounds to me already like he's uh, he, this is more than a two-man operator, two-end operation, right? Um, but notice, it's still not really a battle. They're only doing two things. They're wrecking the gate, and then they're letting in the water. So letting in the river is not a 
a sort of last gasp kind of thing, right? It's not a um, how can they um, um, how can they uh, counter the fires of Saruman or, you know, what we see eventually. This is like plan A. It's like the only plan. How are they going to, how are they going to do it? So originally the water is a way to enable still presumably a comparatively small number of events to be able to neutralize uh, Isengard. Um, and Tony, I agree, it is unclear whether the they, especially at the end, while some kept guard, the rest fell in the rear of the battle. Um, it, it, it's a little bit unclear whether we're talking about trees or ants here. Um, it may just be all of this stuff may be done with trees under the under the command, basically, of Treebeards. So there may still only be the two Ents who are shepherding their trees to do this stuff, right? That seems possible. Here comes scene of Saruman being let out of his tower and trying to speak in friendly fashion to Gandalf. Remember, that was in one of the original outline projections when we're closing up loose ends. He had originally put that... It was at the very tail end of his outline. Whether he meant it to go there or whether he was just listing it there as a, a way to tie up loose ends was is not 100% certain, but it sounded like he was thinking of doing it well after the fact. Of course, that made more sense back when, again, everything was one united theater of action around Minas Tirith, right? We have to go and we got to resolve that before we're going to trek all the way back out and see Saruman. So um, delaying the confrontation with Saruman at all until after um, everything is done in Minas Tirith and, and Mordor made a lot of sense in that case. Now, with Saruman being the focal point of at least the front half of the action here, it's a, it's a, different, it's a different picture, so we can see him shifting that forward here. Um, but the concept is still the same. This is affable Saruman, remember. Ah, my dear Gandalf, I am so pleased to see you. We, at least, we wizards, understand one another. These people all seem so unnecessarily angry. What a mess the world is in. Really, you and I must consult together. Such men as we are needed. Now, about what? Now, what about our spheres of influence, right? Now, what about... I love this, like, so we have to divvy up the world between us, Gandalf, right? Um, uh, (laughs) I agree, Nancy. Affable Saruman is very funny. Um... Uh, yeah, so, Tony, no, Saruman's voice isn't a thing yet. We've had no allusion to the voice of Saruman. Um, the first time we see him, again, the whole affability thing, many of these lines, the, the, now what about our spheres of influence thing, for instance, is in that very first outline, that, that piece of dialogue came through right away. Um, so, and originally it doesn't sound like, he's being especially persuasive. Like, it doesn't work, right? This is just Saruman trying to play it cool, right? And then Gandalf uh, 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 kind of uh, uh, doesn't exactly mock him for it, but then breaks his staff. Um, uh, But, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Gandalf looks at him and laughs. Yes, I understand you well enough, Saruman. Give me your staff, he said in a voice of terrible command. He took it and broke it. I am the white wizard now, he said. Behold, you are clad in many colors. They turn his coat inside out. Gandalf gives him a rough staff. 
added subsequently, Saruman is to go without a staff and have no wooden thing to lean on by decree of Treebeard. I love that, by the way, right? The Treebeard condemns him never to, to like, use wooden tools ever again. Uh, That's fantastic. Go, Saruman, he said, and beg from the charitable for a day's digging, added subsequently, or put this toward... Put this toward end of story. In meanwhile, give Saruman over to the guard of the Ents. Further addition, yes. Right. Okay. So the, so he's not, so he's thinking he's still going to defer the final confrontation with Saruman, right? Uh, and of course, as you'll remember, uh, Saruman is uh, um, eventually he's going to split these uh, these two things, right? Uh, the breaking of his staff and the casting him from the council is going to happen, you know, right after the battles and things. And then the, you know, go and beg from the charitable, that kind of thing is going to happen, of course, at the very end um, uh, when they meet on the road. Arthur, the many colors thing is really fascinating, isn't it? Behold, you are clad in many colors. Um, It's not a... A revelation, right? It's not. It's not. Saruman changing himself. Um, uh, Jennifer, as you were pointing out, it's uh, it's a punishment. It seems right. Behold, you are clad in many colors, and I don't see the significance of it. Now, Arthur was um, reminded, uh, and and you know, Arthur, it is a really fascinating kind of. Uh, uh, connection in this context. Behold, you are clad in many colors. It's hard not to remember Joseph's coat of many colors in Genesis, right? Um, But it's weird, though, because, of course, that was a sign of favor. His father gave him his coat of many colors uh, because, like, he was his dad's favorite. Um, It is like a reversal of Joseph. It's a curse instead of a gift. Uh, Instead of saying you're specially favored, or is... um, is there a sense, though, in which Tolkien's actually playing with that? That is, okay, I mean, the many colors. I shall give you a, uh, you know, a robe of many colors is very like the gift of the robe of many colors to Joseph. I mean, I, 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 I too find a really hard time avoiding that connection in this context, right? In Joseph's case, it was a sign of favor. In Gandalf's case, it's a sign of what? Mockery, right? It's a sign of demotion. It's um, it's a sign of disfavor to Saruman. But it's also remember Saruman was just like, what about our spheres of influence, right? He's still acting like he's a privileged insider. And Gandalf, um, so there's the kind of the 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 backhanded gift, right? Um. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Thomas, I don't understand why they turn his coat inside out. Um, I mean, does it have lots of colors on the inside? I don't, I don't, I don't understand the connection. I feel like I can understand either one of them. You're like, we'll give you a, you know, a, a robe of many colors, just to indicate you're not the white anymore, right? 
Okay. Um, and I can also imagine them like turning his coat inside out, right? Um, yeah, John, I w- oh my gosh, I was thinking of exactly the same thing. John Caldwell and I were both remembering uh, this scene in, in Mary Poppins where Mr. Banks uh, is fired and, and uh, you know, like they, they like punch through his hat and, and, uh, 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 you know, turn out his umbrella, right. To, to humiliate him. I was totally thinking of exactly that same thing, John, the whole turning his coat inside out. That's what it sounds like. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Peter says that's what the Royal Navy used to do to misbehaving officers. Turn their coat inside out. Peter is what they used to do. Right. So, okay. So that would have been likely then, somewhere in kind of Tolkien's cultural context, right? That would have been sort of an accepted thing that you do as a sign of, as a sign of humiliation, right? Almost like defrocking a priest, Tony. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like that. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Aha. Yeah. Uh, Peter says that the, the lining of the Royal Navy, uh, coat was canary yellow instead of blue. So, right. That would have been, um, Aha. Okay. Okay. Um, right. Okay. Well, that's really, of course, obviously, Peter, that would have been enormously visible, right? If everybody else is wearing navy blue and you're wearing, and you're wearing canary yellow, uh, that's, um, uh, there's no hiding that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, And Brandon, I agree, it is interesting that Gandalf has to take the staff, right? Give me your staff, he says. And then he breaks it. I don't know what he breaks it over his knee or something. I don't know how he breaks it, exactly. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, like I said, I understand either one of them. Behold, you are clad in many colors, and... They turn his coat inside out. Um, both of them make sense. The second one makes a lot of sense, of course, now, after we've been talking about this. But I don't see them again. <laughs> do wizard robes all have... I forget who is asking this. Um, do wizard robes all have multiple colors on the inside? Um, I don't... Uh, I don't really know. Um... Stephen says the whole thing seems a lot less powerful and more administrative. Yeah, more official. Um, uh, it's more like the you know like a, a scene of military punishment or of you know it's it's more like a court martial or a um, or or the defrocking of a priest than it is this like battle of wills that we see between Saruman and Gandalf uh, in the published uh, text. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, but notice, we can see, um, going back to uh, Tony. I think the question you were asking about the about the the voice, right? We can see the seeds of 
Saruman's voice, right? Saruman's affability is like, okay, Gandalf, great, glad you're here, right? What about our spheres of influence? We got a little taste of that in that original outline. When he expands it here, we begin to get persuasive Saruman, right? These people all seem so unnecessarily angry. What a mess the world is in. Really, you and I must consult together. Such men as we are needed, right? Uh, You can hear the beginnings of that uh, sweet-talking voice that Saruman is going to have, the power of the persuasiveness of his voice. Gandalf laughs at him, right? Gandalf will always laugh at him. But, uh, uh, and there's no indication here that anybody experiences any pull from his voice or that his voice is a thing at all. Um, but definitely we can see the first steps moving in that direction, right? Okay. Return to Adares. Funeral of somebody, the second master. Remember, we had the third master. Amir was third master. Theoden is the first master. He's not even called king yet, right? So, funeral of somebody, the second master. Added above Hama and Theodred. Feast in Windseld, which is, of course, Metaseld. Eowyn's, or will become Metaseld, rather. Eowyn, sister of Eomir, waits on the guests. Description of her and of her love for Aragorn. Oh, okay. Uh, so that comes in right away. So when a- when Eowyn, sister of Amir, comes in, she's immediately in love with Aragorn, right? Now, we had references to her before in one of the very first Rohirrim projections. Remember, he was considering making her the daughter of Theoden, right? Uh, but then he settled on her being Amir's sister, which he's kept with, uh, which he's kept with here. Now, we're going to come back to Eowyn, of course, uh, before the end. But her being in love with Aragorn, there here from from it's not quite exactly her beginning, but it's pretty close to her beginning. News comes at the feast or next morning of the siege of Minas Tirith by the Harid wife, added subsequently, brought by a dark Gondorian like Boromir. Theoden answers that he does not owe fealty only to heirs of Elendil, but he will come. The horsemen of Rohan ride east, with Gandalf, Aragorn, Gimli, Legolas, Merry, and Pippin. Gandalf as the White Rider. Added subsequently, Eowyn goes as Amazon. Vision of Minas Tirith from afar. Okay, so notice both elements of Eowyn's character are there, right? Her love for Aragorn, her going into battle as an Amazon. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's present from the beginning. Um... And, uh, but Carson, yes, to me, the most fascinating element. So we get the death of Theodred and Hama, right? That comes in. But to me, the most important element uh, in this thing is the fealty to the heirs of Elendil, right? And Carson, I agree, that does elevate the importance of, of Aragorn. Again, let's remember, the political situation, as last we heard it really articulated, was still way back at the Council of Elrond. And that situation was, the the Andorians, of course, as they still were, had kicked out the heirs of Elendil. So the so the heirs of Elendil, the heirs of Isildur, uh, had you know we still had the Isildur issue, but um, you know his 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 whole business with the ring and dying and all that stuff. But anyway, the heirs of Elendil were ruling in Minas Tirith, 
and we still had a very discreet situation. That is, like, we had the Numenorian class, and then we had the rest of the Andorians. So that the Numenorians were ruling, but they were not exactly mixed with the rest of the people. Exactly. There's, they seem to be still uh, differentiated, right? And then eventually, they kick her, they kick them out. Right, they kick out the Numenorians, and Aragorn's still bitter about this. Right, this is why the North Kingdom gets founded because the the heirs of Elendil have to have to go up north when they've been kicked out uh, by the Andorians, uh, and they, that's when they form Fornost, right, their city up in the north, uh, and then of course eventually they lose that, and they and that's where Aragorn is with no kingdom at all anymore, and he is all cranky with Boromir saying, "If I go back to me, what are they going to kick me out again? Right, if I come and help them now?" Um, so that was always the question: bringing in the Rohirroth now uh, as a sort of a third player in this. Um, the idea that the heirs of Elendil are the ones who hold the fealty of the Rohirroth. So the Rohirroth may be friends with the with Gondor, um, but they don't owe them fealty. They have not sworn an oath to Gondor. They have sworn an oath to the Numenorians. And so we can see, of course, one thing among other things uh, is that by kicking out the Numenorians, they have jeopardized the Andorians were like doubly or trebly foolish in doing so, right? Because they have uh, risked, among other things, their uh, um, their alliance with the Rohiroth up to their north. And but more importantly, it gives Aragorn a clear role, right? Remember, Aragorn wanted to go straight to Minas Tirith. I still think that was his temptation, right? Was to head straight off to, to Minas Tirith when Gandalf was telling him, go south, go to Edoras, even though it doesn't seem like the direct way, right? Um, but now it's clear why. If they have only sworn fealty to the heirs of Elendil, now Aragorn, who was already leading them in battle, right, he becomes the bridge between Rohan and Gondor. So the coming in of the Rohiroth to the battle at Minas Tirith, both their preventing Saruman from besieging them in uh, Minas Tirith in the rear, and their eventual role in coming in and helping to lift the siege, which we're already clearly moving towards now, um, both of those things are due to Aragorn and seem to be building now momentum towards hey, you really want to take the heir of Elendil back, don't you, to be the ruler in Minas Tirith. It wasn't headed that way before. Now, more and more, it seems to be going in that direction. And it's the Rohirrim that are the bridge. Uh, and that, I think, is a pretty cool thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, Rachel, I agree. We haven't seen a trotter in a while, right? Um you know, I'm not sure. Now, remember, Rachel, it's primarily when he's around the hobbits that he's still called Trotter, right? Um, we still haven't seen an active shift from Trotter to Strider yet, so I don't think we have any reason to conclude that that name change has happened. He's just not referred to as Trotter anymore because he's not interacting with hobbits chiefly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um Exactly, Yana, just like he's still primarily Strider around the Hobbits in the published text. Exactly. 
Um, okay. Oh, yeah, so uh, Peregrine23 in the Twitch chat is saying that Dark Gondorian is an interesting term. It is an interesting term. Um, I tend to think that it it only means a Gondorian with, like, who was dark, right? Like, had dark hair. Because remember, the Rohirrim are mostly Nordic, right? So they're all blonde and everything. Um, so the Gondorian would be dark uh, compared to the fair Rohirrim. Um, I, it needn't mean any more than that. Um, could it be referring to their, to his skin? It's possible. It could be, you know, he could be swarthy, Stephen. That's, that's, that's quite possible. Um, could it refer to his character? Like he's a dark Gondorian. I don't think it refers to his character. I don't think he's a, I don't think he's a morally suspect Gondorian. Um, uh, I think it's a. I think it's a. It's a. It's a, a physical description, and it probably means primarily. Um, yeah, Kate. It is easy to think of the Black Numenorians, right? It kind of sounds almost like that—a dark Gondorian. Um, but I, I, I tend not to think so. Um, I think it mostly. Uh, um, I think it mostly is. Uh, uh, is just about, chiefly about hair. I suspect, but. Um, in any case, certainly, certainly a, vis- a visual description. Um, yeah, Tony, it does certainly seem that the arrival of the Rohirrim is being built up to be the catastrophe of the battle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, remember, we still have had the ships. We've had the ships coming up from the sea, but we don't know... We haven't heard any glimpse of any future plans for that, right, as far as, like, Aragorn and the ships. Okay. Order of tail. This is a really interesting deliberation. Bring each party to crisis. Ents break off with night lies over Isengard. N26 with far vision of Windseld's golden roof in sight of the smoke. Possibly they see men in strange armor riding also from east to Edoras. Now return to Frodo and Sam. Meeting with Gollum. Betrayal by him. Capture of Frodo on west side of Kirathungal. Frodo imprisoned in tower because A. No ring is on him. B. Sauron is busy with war, and it takes time for message to reach him. Then return to Gandalf in Battle of Isen, Feast of Victory, Relief of Minas Tirith, and March of the Army of Gandalf towards Daggerlad and Gates of Kirathungal. Then return to Frodo. Make him look out into him onto impenetrable night. Then use file which has escaped clutched in his hand or wrapped in rag. By its light he sees the forces of deliverance approach and the dark host go out to meet them. Grieves for Sam or thinks he has betrayed him too. Oh, that's horrible. The orc guards come on him and take file and shutter windows and he lies in dark and despair. And presumably that's where Sam is going to rescue him. Um, Notice. um, Notice that um... Remember, when last we saw Frodo and Sam, <clears throat> they were still in a pickle in Minas Morgul, and it seemed like Tolkien was having a hard time figuring out how to get them out of it. Um, so, we n- notice that he's already kind of making progress on that, right? Um, point B is the is the first point of interest there for me. Sauron is busy with war and it takes time for message to reach him. 
one of the problems he was having uh, with the previous imprisonment and escape was that they're going to send, they know it's the ring, the ring bearer. They're, they're totally going to send a message right away and a ring wraith is totally going to come ASAP. Right. So, um, how can they escape? And that's exactly where we left him with the ring, with the ring wraith arriving at Minas Morgul and Frodo still in the city and trying to figure out how to get out. Right. And that was the, that was exactly the problem. So we're already, he's already alleviating that problem by changing the timing, right? Thinking about how these two stories are interweaving. Remember, the Mordor story, as it had told before, was kind of happening in a, in a little bit of a bubble. We were glancing back over at vague battles happening and stuff, but that plot line hadn't really been developed enough that they could be interwoven. Now, we have them developing more fully. Um, so we have an excuse for a delay and why there might not be more attention being given here. And in fact, we move on from there to suggest why might it actually be not so very hard to get out of the tower after all, right? Um, he sees the dark host go out to meet them. So when the army of deliverance comes and the army, the dark army marches out and the dark host goes out to meet them, then the tower is left, not quite abandoned, right? But much radically reduced. Uh, so we begin to have this possibility, this increased possibility of uh, of escape. So it already is making it a little bit easier uh, as we go. Um, yeah, yeah. And Jennifer, yes, Kirithungal is still the gated entrance to Mordor. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the, the gate off of Daggerlad. Yep. Uh, spiders presumably still live there, but... Uh, um, but yes, it's still the main gate. Um, but notice, bigger picture here, Tolkien's first impulse, as he's thinking through the story, is to interweave it. In fact, to do like Peter Jackson ended up doing, not like Tolkien ended up publishing it, right? Instead of having the one storyline in book three and then the Frodo and Sam storyline in book four and the way that these two storylines kind of overlap and move forward like that, right? Um, he's, um, uh, he's definitely thinking about... He's, he's not planning it that way. He's wanting to go back and forth. He's wanting to keep the time fr- frame um, simultaneous um, as he goes through all of the plots here. Um, Tony asks, is the file supposed to increase his sight like a palantir? That's a great question. Um, By its light, he sees the forces of deliverance approach. It would have to be shining a lot of light. I mean, like, you know, a search beacon from the top of, from the window of his tower. Um, And no wonder they come up and confiscate that thing, if that's what's happening. I'm not really sure, Tony, exactly how that's working. It sounds like it's just literally physical light that it's shedding and and enabling him to see. Um, It's possible, I guess, Jennifer, that he's looking through it. It's conceivable, but I don't, I don't really know. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really suggest that explicitly. Um, A little bit unclear, but notice the significance of the file here Um, is uh, giving Frodo hope, enabling him to see the deliverance, right? Uh, And to see his opportunity to escape, even though he himself can't seize that opportunity. Um, Yeah. All right. 
Where put Parley of Sauron and Gandalf? Pause. Time out. There's a parley between Sauron and Gandalf? Oh, man. Um, I have to think that that is the scene which eventually is going to be given to the mouth of Sauron, right? So that... And partly, because remember the context here. The context here is when we're talking about the uh, the deliverance, right? Um, the uh, When the army is going to come and then the dark host marches out to meet them. The final battle, which... Uh, and, and remember... I forget which of you were t- talking about this before, but the... That the, what is what seems to be meant to be the climactic battle is going to feature Sauron coming out personally and parleying with Gandalf first. Uh, so that's interesting. If after capture of Frodo, readers, sorry, so where to put it? If you put it after the capture of Frodo, readers will know that Frodo, written above Sauron, has not ring. If after a capture of Frodo, readers will know that Sauron doesn't have the ring. That's a downside, apparently, to putting the parley of Sauron and Gandalf after the capture of Frodo. Which, chronologically, it has to be, right? Chronologically, Frodo has to have escaped, because he's got to be getting close to Mount Doom by now, by the time of the parley of Sauron and Gandalf. So, um... He has to have been captured already, but you see the problem. Tolkien would like the readers not to know. So the parley as is being set up here, Tolkien seems to be conceiving of, before that final battle, a confrontation between Sauron and Gandalf, in which Sauron is faking like he still has the ring, right? And they think it's over. Gandalf is going to, there's going to be the strong temptation to despair as they think, oh man, he captured Frodo, Sauron has the ring again. You know, good night, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Carson says this seems to indicate why he eventually broke up book five and book six of the return of the king in the ways that he did. Yeah, Carson, isn't that cool? Because you see what happens, right? By doing the narratives differently, he does do that, right? Uh, We end book four, we end the two towers with Frodo was alive but taken by the enemy. We know that Sam has the ring, not Frodo, right? But we don't know what's going to happen with the ring. We And then we go to book five and we end book five with the parley, right? Before the gates. Uh, in which it seems quite possible that um, uh, the ring has been taken. So he wants there to be some uncertainty. Um, (laughs) Jennifer says, uh, Tolkien having written a back-and-forth conversation with himself is fascinating. Yeah, I love how he, he, like, talks this stuff out to himself on paper, right? Anyway, added subsequently in two stages. No, not if you break off with Frodo carried off by orcs and before Sam rescues him. 
Okay, so if we break it off there, so Frodo's been captured and Sam hasn't rescued him, in other words, just where book four is eventually going to break off, right? Even if Sam's taking of ring is told, you can make Sam fly among the rocks with Gollum and orcs on his trail and his escape seem unlikely, right? And that's pretty much exactly where we are at the end of book four. He's not flying, right? He's not, he's not like running away, but still his, his, his escape still seems kind of unlikely, or at least I guess you could say his capture still seems fairly likely, especially since remember the very end of book four, the very end of the two towers, uh, Sam has just knocked himself unconscious against a door, right? So things look pretty bad. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Tony, I agree. I think that never seeing Sauron does make it uh, uh, does make it cooler, right? Does make him scarier that he never actually comes out. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, possibly best as originally planned, he decides. All account of Gandalf as far as Kirith Ungol, and then return to Sam and Frodo. Sam rescues Frodo, and while battle is joined at Mouth of Gorgoroth, they fly towards Orodruin. So he's still wanting just to make this contemporaneous, right? So the rescue of Frodo should happen while the battle is going on. And then they just, they, they have to scamper, right? Then they just they just uh, they fly towards Orodruin. No, they don't have wings. Um, yeah. Yeah. And notice, I think that here still the geography is still kind of, well, it's clearly not well defined yet, right? Um, we know it's going to take them days to get from the Tower of Kirith Ungol, even, uh, up to Mount Doom. Um, but uh, he's still not really conceiving that. It's, yeah, Tony Mortar would have to be really small, or the mountain, you know, Mount Doom would have to be right there, right next to it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So, Carson, thinking about what you're saying about where we see the splits happening, you're right. We see him, in the end, accomplishing exactly what he wants to accomplish by by ha- by shifting away from this contemporaneous narrative, going back and forth all the way, right? The interwoven narrative style. Um one of the things that he accomplishes by doing that is putting just the right amount of suspense into the Frodo and Sam story. But also, in the end, he's going to preserve the timeline. Right? That is to say, he's going to enable them to take as much time as they need to get to Mount Doom. Um, yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> Brandon, you're right. They would have to really fly, uh, to 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 literally fly to make it to Minas to to Mount Doom on time. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now we begin to develop the history of the Rohiroth. Right, the story of the arri- the arrival at Edoras was now revised again. Gandalf is present when the travelers are challenged at the gates, and the guards crying "Abidath Kumanon Kutha," which just means exactly what they say in translation. In the you know, um, uh, you know, uh, hold uh, strangers unknown. Um, are rebuked by him for using the tongue of Rohan. That's rebu- re- rebuked by Gandalf. The, fo- the flowers on the mounds, still seven, become Nefredil, 
the flowers of Lorien. And Aragorn utters the verse, Where now the horse and the rider, referring to Eorl the Old, changed at once to Eorl the Young, who rode down out of the north and to his steed Felorof, father of horses. Um, Veronica, Gandalf rebukes the guards, um, which of course still pretty much happens uh, in the uh, in the published text, um, that the guards get rebuked for it, basically saying, if you expect to be answered, you should use the common speech, not your own speech. Like, you can see that we're not Rohirrim, so speaking the language that you're pretty sure we don't speak is uh, not uh, real diplomatic, right? Um, I assume that is still the kind of rebuke that he's, uh, that Tolkien has in mind there, that Gandalf is going to be delivering. Seven mounds, only seven ger- generations from Eorl the Young. The history of Rohan is short, half the length, right, that it's going to eventually be in the published text. Um, interesting that the flowers are Nifredo, are the flowers of Lorien. So they're really suspicious about... Um, uh, um, they're really suspicious about the elves, right? But yet they have the same flowers on their... You know, they have the flowers of Lorien uh, on the tombs of their kings. That's uh, that's kind of cool, right? I actually kind of like that. Um, Aragorn does the where now the horse and the rider. I'm not sure. Christopher's summary here leaves me a little bit confused. Is this, Is he summarizing this in order? Like, does Aragorn utter the verse where now the horse and the rider after... They're challenged by at the gates, and Gandalf rebukes the guards for using the tongue of Rohan. Does that happen after? So, what? It's part of their introduction. Is does does he sing it to like give his bona fides? Right. I mean, is that? I, I'm I'm not I'm not sure. I'm understanding that. This is another one of those places where I kind of wish... I know it's a long book, but I kind of wish Christopher had given us a little bit more text there and done less summarizing, but... Um... Uh... Yeah. Yeah. I love how he was originally Aerol the Young, right? Or Aerol the Old immediately changed to Aerol the Young. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay. This was really cool, though. The lost description. Before Theoden's hall there was a portico, with pillars made of mighty trees hewn in the upland forests, and carved with interlacing figures gilded and painted. The doors also were of wood, carven in the likeness of many beasts and birds, with jeweled eyes and golden claws. And Christopher points out that this description never... It, it gets lost from the text. Um, he was suspecting that it might have been accidentally lost. He doesn't see any reason to think that his father had shifted away from this description. Um, it's just in the many times that this manuscript got revised and and shifted around, uh, this paragraph got kind of lost in the, in the shuffle. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, Lots of carven wood. Um, 
the beasts and birds I find kind of interesting, right? Not horses, specifically. Just beasts and birds with jeweled eyes and golden claws. Interesting. As they stood in the darkness by the doors of the hall and saw on one of the hangings the figure of the young man on a white horse, Aragorn said, Behold Eorl the young! Thus he rode out of the north to the battle of the field of Gorgoroth. The field of Gorgoroth. A very difficult draft preceding this has the battle of Gorgoroth where Sauron was overthrown, making it clear that at this stage my father conceived that Eorl came south to the great battle in which Gilgalad and Elendil were slain and Isildur took the ring. Right? That's me gobsmacked. So, holy cow, Eorl the young, or the old, excuse me, the young, right? Eorl, the formerly old, was originally like 200 years ago, right? We just had seven mounds, right? The whole history of Rohan is only about 200 years long. And now Eorl is coming down to the, is part of the last alliance? That's kind of amazing. Um, uh, that's really um, incredible. I assume that, by the way, do, do I think this is evidence that the Third Age is only a couple hundred years old? No, I don't think that that's the case. Um, I think that this has to mean he um, he is, this is an immediate rethinking, right? So, we're going to have to add a heck of a lot more mounds uh, than this. I don't remember that he's ever given any clear span of time, right? I don't know how long it's been since the Battle of the Last Alliance. Um, but it's been a while, right? Remember Frodo's astonishment when he hears Elrond say that he was there, right? That he thought that, you know, when Frodo thought that the death of Gilgalad was a long-ago time, right? Remember, that was in the last version of the Council of Elrond that we saw. So, it was a long ago... It's not 200 years ago, right? It was much longer ago than that. Um, So, I don't think... uh, Of the two things, right? Either he's pushing back the history of Rohan a long ways, or he's compressing the Third Age radically. I don't think he's doing that. I think he's pushing back the history of Rohan a long ways here. Um... But why? Why does he want Errol the Young to ride down out of the north to the Battle of the Field of Gorgoroth? It seems to me the answer is fairly clear for the sake of the parallel, right? Um, He wants to have Errol the Young coming into the last... Apparently, Eorl the Young, he's going to ride out of the north to the Battle of the Field of Gorgoroth. Now, I don't know that that necessarily means that Eorl the Young is going to have a catastrophic effect on the Battle of the Last Alliance, right? Um, But we have a clear parallel now of the Rohirrim coming in, you know, riding in from the north uh, and helping out Gondor, right? And the Numenorians, and of course, it also explains 
Exactly, Kate. It explains the loyalty to Elendil and Elendil's house specifically, right? Um, so we get the history of that. So we've already had that idea planted, right? Of the the fealty that the Rohirrith swore to the sons of the heirs of Elendil specifically, and this trend of the Rohirrim coming in and having a possibly catastrophic effect on a major, um, on a major battle, right? Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, okay, let's keep going. <clears throat> Starting to get late. We still have like six slides left to go. We're doing great, though. Okay. The discovery of Wormtongue. <clears throat> when he actually... So most of what we've been looking at so far has been either projected outlines by Tolkien or summaries by Christopher, right? Look what happens when we get inside the hall. At the far end of the hall, beyond the hearth and facing the doors, was a dais with three steps, and in the midst of the dais was a great chair. In the chair sat a man so bent with age that he seemed almost a dwarf. His white hair was braided upon his shoulders, his long beard was laid upon his knees, but his eyes burned with a keen light that glinted from afar off. Behind his chair stood two fair women— at his feet upon the steps sat a wizened, struck-out old figure of a man with a pale, wise face. There was silence, right? So here's Wormtongue. He's not Wormtonguing yet, right? But um, remember Tolkien talking about discovery, right? And this seems a really interesting example of that. There has been no hint of Wormtongue. There's been no need for Wormtongue. It's not even like there's a role that he needs to fill, and so it's logical that, like, of course, when we actually get there, we need... There's no purpose for him yet, right? Um, it's just, when he describes the scene, this sounds like another one of those moments where Tolkien is like, they come before Theoden, and there's this dude there, right? There's this wizened figure with a pale, wise face, and Tolkien has to figure out what the what that guy's doing there, right? And it, of course, it's going to turn out to be Wormtongue, but even I, the 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 gradualness, um, the gradualness of uh, Wormtongue's role is to me one of the most fascinating things, right? Um, he discovers that this guy exists, but he he doesn't know, clearly doesn't know at first why he's there or what he's doing. And uh, and yeah, so who's the other fair woman? Theoden's daughter. Um, remember, he was considering making Eowyn Theoden's daughter, and then he said, decided, no, she should be Eomir's sister. So he's having his cake and eating it too, right? These, Theoden has a daughter, and Eomir has a sister, and they're both... They're both there. Christopher, of course, points out that this is pretty odd. Um, uh, pretty odd for, uh, uh, from from uh, from the beginning, right? In that he describes Theoden's daughter as the elder of the two. So, on the one hand, she's the daughter of the king, and Eowyn is just the niece of the king. 
And the daughter is older than the niece as well, so she has, like, every reason to have precedence and be the most, the more important person. And yet the narrative is all over Eowyn from the beginning, right? And the other one is, a, is a, you know, the daughter uh, is a, a, a sort of cast off by the narrative from the very beginning. Okay. After Aragorn's triumph over Wormtongue, who has not yet given any other name. Pause. Wormtongue is given that name. Right? Now, Christopher doesn't even make a big deal of this. I get a little frustrated with Christopher in this chapter here. Um, he doesn't even talk about the fact that Wormtongue is named Wormtongue. That is really, really interesting, given that we don't know what he's meant to be doing. Tolkien doesn't even seem to meant to, to, to know what he's doing. There's evidence that that there, or rather, there is not yet any evidence to suggest that Wormtongue is an ally of Saruman at all. He just seems to be a counselor to the king, who is simply called Wormtongue. And remember, as I've said many times, Wormtongue means dragon tongue. And dragons are known for being... Remember the uh, overwhelming personality of Smaug, right? Remember the extremely overwhelming personality of Glaurung, right? And the, the kinds of things that he... The kinds of spells that he puts people under. That's what Wormtongue is about. That's what, that's what that suggests. Um, persuasiveness. Uh... And, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the ability to, to, to talk anybody. So like the, the whole voice of Saruman thing, that's a worm tongue thing, right? Um, worm tongue is, is in that sense, almost like he's like the, the Saruman's mini me, right? He's, uh, he has learned his craft from the master such that he himself takes on the name, uh, of the worm tongue. So Gandalf triumphs over him. So he is the council. So the first step here seems to be, remember Theoden was the one who was all like at least resistant, at worst snarky, right? In his, uh, uh, in his resistance against Gandalf. We seem to be projecting some of that now onto his counselor, Wormtongue, right? Um, the wizened man with a pale wise face. So the triumph seems to be only triumph, oh, like, he has con- so Gandalf comes and we have this sort of three-way, right? There's Theoden who is the decision maker. Gandalf is urging him to do something and to accept him, Gandalf, uh, and to do as he, Gandalf, suggests. And then you've got Wormtongue who is standing against that, right? Wormtongue is resistant to the whole thing. Presumably, for exactly the same reasons that um, Theoden was originally resistant, right? But again, it's like that that resistance that Theoden had is being sort of crystallized um, into uh, uh, into uh, Wormtongue here now. Uh, Veronica, I don't think it is a reference to our connection to uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's Wormwood uh, for two reasons. Is that th- those two things meant very different things? Wormwood, uh, it means it, there's a plant called wormwood, um, and it's a bitter, a very bitter 
herb. It's like a poison, actually. Um, so uh, uh, wormwood is, and is it's also wormwood is also alluded to in the Book of Revelation um, when the waters are being made bitter. The waters are being turned into wormwood. Um, it's one of the curses. Uh, uh, I think it's one of the seven bowls of wrath that are poured out upon the earth uh, in the Book of Revelation. So, um, so wormwood. That's what wormwood refers to. Whereas worm tongue. Is uh, is about the tongues of dragons uh, specifically, and there's a lot of um, both Germanic and sort of fairy tale tradition about worm tongues, um, about the tongues of dragons. Um, my favorite worm tongue moment, by the way, in medieval literature, uh, is from not from Siegfried, but from um, what's his name, Tristan. In the in the Middle High German uh, Tristan and Isolde story. Um, uh, by Gottfried von Strasberg, um, he kills a dragon. He usually kills a dragon, saving he saves his old from a dragon. Um, that's kind of how they meet. Um, and he cuts off the tongue of the dragon, and he hi- he takes the worm tongue, and he hides it in his breast. Right, he like puts it in his in his coat pocket, and when when the worm tongue is in his breast, he becomes enchanted, um, and his speech becomes powerful uh, because he's got the the dragon's tongue um, uh, stuck down uh, his coat inside his own, you know, against his own breast. Um, Yeah. Anyway. um, Oh, yeah. Tony, uh, I'm pretty sure Tolkien uses the word sister-daughter instead of niece because he wants to use the Anglo-Saxon terms. Both sister and daughter are are good Anglo-Saxon words. uh, So he wants to use those. Okay, anyway, sorry. Uh, two women... Um, oh, yeah, but we can... Hang on. We didn't, I didn't get, any, didn't get past the first half of the first sentence. After Gandalf's triumph over Wormtongue, who has not yet given any other name, Theoden is assisted down the hall by the two women, and he says to them, Go, Edis, that's his daughter, presumably, and you too, Eowyn's sister-daughter. As they went, the younger of them looked back, very, flare, very fair and slender she seemed. Her face was filled with gentle pity, and her eyes shone with unshed tears. So Aragorn saw her for the first time in the light of day, and after she was gone, he stood still, looking at the dark doors and taking little heed of other things. Okay. So Aragorn saw her for the first time in the light of day. Um... the tone of that is fairly unmistakable, right? We've already been told in the outlines that Eowyn is going to fall in love with him, right? But that's not what happens first, right? Aragorn is smitten with her first. Um, Her face is filled with gentle pity and her eyes shone with unshed tears because she's concerned about Theoden, right? So he looks on her as she is tending for Theoden and he thinks she's adorable, right? Uh, and good and lots of other things. And there he stands, transfixed, staring after Eowyn. Um, uh, this seems to be the plan, right? We're moving ahead with this. Aragorn, Eowyn, clearly. That is a sentence of destiny right there. So Aragorn saw her saw her for the first time in the light of day. And this is presumably not the last time he's going to see her, right? This is the beginning of a portentous relationship 
uh, and we already know how she's going to feel, right? Um, and yes, John, this line, that line persists into the published text. And so for the, uh, and the, for, for the first time under the light of day, he saw, uh, did Aragorn see Eowyn? Yes, a remnant of that is in the published text. And John, I also long thought, I still think, that is the strangest line. Of all of the lines that he did not cut, of all the lines that he retained from his earlier drafts, that would be one of my nominees for weirdest... Uh, most strangely conserved. I would have cut that. Because it still sounds like a portentous romance line, right? Um, Yes, yes. I, I, I was always mystified by the tone of that sentence. Um, And it makes so much more sense when you hear that it was written when their romance was going to be a thing. Um, Okay. It's one of my favorite moments in this chapter. You'll remember, of course, in the published text, Gandalf takes Theoden aside and speaks to him, and Theoden's reactions are described from a distance, but we don't get to hear what Gandalf says, right? Here we get it! This is what Gandalf whispered! His voice was low and secret, and yet to those beside him, keen and clear. Of Sauron he told, and the Lady Galadriel, and of Elrond in Rivendell far away, of the council, and the setting forth of the company of nine, and all their perils of the road, all the perils of their road. Four only have come thus far, he said. One is lost, Boromir, prince of Gondor. Two were captured, but are free, and two have gone upon a dark quest. Look eastward, Theoden, into the heart of menace they have gone. Two small folk, such as you and Rohan deem but the matter of children's tales, yet doom hangs upon them. Our hope is with them. Hope, if we can but stand meanwhile. Okay, so he gives an entire plot summary. Right, um, he tells of Sauron. Right, so first the bad news. Right, here's what Sauron is up to. Um, but notice his first thing: you're not alone. Right, you don't stand alone. There are other powers moving. There's the Lady Galadriel and what she's up to. There's Elrond and Rivendell and what he's up to. And there's the Fellowship. Right, and what they have accomplished and what has happened with them. And even now, the two halflings doom hangs upon them and our hope is with them our job is but to stand meanwhile and this is the first time that we've heard that particular note right that everything rests on Frodo we just have to hold out um I mean, that's always been kind of... It's always been implied, of course, that everything rests on Frodo destroying the ring. I'm not saying that that's a new idea. But that the whole role of the second... Of the other half, right? What's going on while Frodo is taking the ring to Mordor? Before, it was about saving Minas Tirith, right? Which was horribly besieged from both directions. Now, the context is different. Our hope is with them. Hope, if we can but stand, meanwhile. We just have to hold out and hope that Frodo gets through. 
The significance of the meeting of Aragorn and... This is Christopher talking here, of course. The significance of the meeting of Aragorn and Arwen, on the other hand, was destined to survive, though fundamentally transformed. Yeah, I'll say. In this first version, in a passage already cited, after she had gone, he stood still, looking at the dark doors and taking little heed of other things. We already saw that. At the meal before the departure, Aragorn was silent, but his eyes followed Eowyn, struck out. And when she brought the wine to the guests, long she looked upon Aragorn, and long he looked upon her, for which was substituted, as she stood before Aragorn, she paused suddenly and looked upon him, as if only now she had she seen him clearly. So he falls in love with her first, remember. this is That's confirmation of that. He looked down upon her fair face, and their eyes met. For a moment they stood thus, and their hands met as he took the cup from her. Hail Aragorn, son of Arathorn, she said. With this contrast, the passage that appears in its place, sorry, with this, contrast the passage that appears in its place in the two towers. And after Theoden's words, but in Dunberg, changed to Dunharrow, the people may long defend themselves, and if the battle go ill thither, and if the battle go ill, thither will come all who escape. Aragorn says, if I live, I will come, Lady Eowyn, and then maybe we will ride together. Then Eowyn smiled and bent her head gravely. Aragorn promises to come find her at Dunharrow. You know, one of the things that's really fun about looking at these early drafts and then comparing it with the later text, don't you sometimes get the impression, like, it's almost like some of the characters in Tolkien's text, remember their own draft history, right? Like, they retain, um, like, a a, a sort of a deep, you know, like, genetic memory of the versions of the story that came before. Like, so, when when Aragorn comes to visit Eowyn, right? When when he shows up at Dunharrow, he's just passing through, of course, in the published text, but he's come to Dun- And she thinks he's come like, oh, you know, you came because you love me, right? Because he promised to do that in the original version. And what's more, he promises he's going to come to Dunharrow and then they'll ride together. So in the published text, he comes to Dunharrow and she's like, oh, that was so sweet, right? And then she's like, now let's ride together. And he's like, no way. And she's like, what? Right? Because again, it's almost like her character remembers uh, that 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 promise. Yes, Kate, this is almost like uh, this is the Aragorn and Arwen story in the Upside Down. I hear you. That, uh, uh, that, that is... Uh, this is the alternate universe version of the Aragorn and Arwen story, right? Um, and again, every single element is retained. Every single element. The glances, the, uh, the uh, you know, Hail Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the, um, the, the, the coming to Dunharrow, the, the desire to ride together, all of that, right? All of that is there. Um, though, of course, as Christopher rather understatedly says, fundamentally transformed, right? Um, but it's pretty clear. Um, it's pretty clear that this is this is the plan, right? Aragorn and Eowyn. Now remember, this too is, in a sense, a fulfillment of what we've already seen. Remember the, uh, the House of Eorl, House of Elendil connection, right? So by marrying Eowyn to, to Aragorn... 
we've got we're just bringing it back together again, right? It's like the 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 the, the so Theoden is going to ride to Minas Tirith, and by doing so, he's going to recapitulate uh, the the riding of Aeorl the Young, and the bond, the marital bond, which seems to be in the offing here, right, between Aragorn and Eowyn, is going to reseal that, uh, uh, that connection between Rohan and the house of Elendil. All makes perfect sense, right? Um... Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> oh, that's cool, Kate. Kate says there's a line from a Stephen Sondheim song that goes, everything's different, nothing's changed, maybe only slightly rearranged. That would be like an epigram. That would be an awesome epigram for this book, actually. Um, <laughs> that's really cool. Okay. I love the list of loose ends, right? This is, this is Tolkien brainstorming. Right here are things that he needs to figure out how to tie up. Gandalf's escape. Put this at the end of twenty six. That is, remember how he was going to end chapter twenty six with Gandalf saying, "Name him not," and that was the end of the chapter. Right. So he's gonna. He decides to. This is where he decides to shift back Gandalf's escape to the end of the White Rider chapter. What happens to Bill the Pony? We never resolved Bill the Pony. What happens to Bill the Pony? Added. So he answers his question. Goes back to Bree and is found by Sam, who who rides him home. So, okay. We have a, a happily ever after for Bill the Pony planned out. Bill Fernie. Got to come back to Bill Fernie, right? He's a live, a live uh, loose end there. Uh, we got to make sure, you know, note to self, don't forget to wrap up Bill Fernie. Bree and Mary's ponies. Whatever happened to Mary's ponies, right? We got to solve the Mary's. Po- so you know that Mary lost his ponies when the when the when the horses were scattered at the inn. Whatever did happen to them? Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, both of you, Carson and Jennifer, are both really touched by Tolkien's concern for the ponies, right? You can't like the no pony left behind here in uh, which is ironic, right? Um, uh, which. Which is ironic, given what happens to the ponies in The Hobbit, right? Two sets of ponies get eaten uh, in the bike. That's quite like you don't want to be a you don't want to be an equine extra in The Hobbit, right? They all come to bad ends, um, <laughs> pretty much um, in uh, in The Hobbit. So, what is he trying to atone for that here? You know, I don't know, but um, but yeah, we're we're really focused on the ponies. Um, okay. Uh, Barnabas Butterbur <laughs> added, and the ponies. <laughs> I just love it. Oh, Galadriel. <laughs> no, 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 no ponies connected with, uh, uh, Galadriel. Ents, Treebeard, Entwives. Aha. So the Entwives, the Entwives emerge here. Aragorn weds Eowyn, sister of Eomir, who becomes Lord of Rohan. That is, Aemir becomes Lord of Rohan and becomes King of Gondor. Aha! So, notice, Aragorn, now, finally, we finally have the return of the king. But notice how that's been implicit here through the Rohirrim. As we know, we, we talked about that with the oath of the, the oath of fealty that the Rohirrim owe to, the Rohiroth, excuse me, owe to uh, the House of Elendil. 
so again, that his marriage to Eowyn is an important part of this. So him becoming king is all tied up with not only his connection with the Rohirrim, but specifically his marriage um, of Eowyn, right? Feast in Gondor, home journey, they pass by round Lorien. So they're going to, apparently going to go up the other way, right? He wants them to pass through Lorien again on the way home. Okay, all right, loose ends. That's good. Oh, wait. Then we have second thoughts. Cut out the love story of Aragorn and Eowyn. Aragorn is too old and lordly and grim. Yeah, he's not going to be like a... He's, you know, Aragorn is no Sir Lancelot, right? This isn't going to work. Make Eowyn the twin sister of Eamond, a stern Amazon woman. Okay, so we're going to... We always had those two elements, right? She's going to fall in love with Aragorn, and she's going to be... She's going to go into battle as an Amazon. So let's beef up the second part. Like, let's make her... Let's make her a warrior woman... And uh, the, and Amir's twin, right, to make them even closer and make her more Amazonian, and uh, and uh, and it's uh, you know what? Let's cut out the mushy stuff. If so, alter the message of Galadriel. Wait, what? Alter the message of Galadriel? Um, hang on. Elfstone, Elfstone, bearer of my green stone in the south under snow, a green stone thou shalt see. Look well, Elfstone, in the shadow of the dark throne, then the hour is at hand that long hath awaited thee. Hang on. He has to alter that if he doesn't marry Eowyn? Really? So it seems that all along, Galadriel's message alluded to Eowyn. For real. For real. That seems to be the situation. He he, he says, you gotta... We gotta alter the message of Galadriel if we're gonna do that. If we're gonna cut out the love story. More on that in a second. Probably Eowyn should die to avenge or save Theoden. Right? So not only we're gonna Eowyn goes straight from comedy to tragedy, right? She goes from happily ever after, you know, the Queen of Gondor to uh, a tragic corpse pretty pretty quickly. Um Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Kate is saying, is Eowyn the green stone under snow? Right, exactly, right? Is that, I don't know. Um, yeah, Brandon was wondering the same thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, Kate says maybe that means Pippin's safe now. Maybe he's going to kill off Pippin too. So maybe if we kill off Eowyn instead, we won't have to kill off Pippin. Um, yeah, Carson was thinking the same thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Stephen, you're right. She still does come pretty close to death, right? You know, she's mistaken for dead. Um, but, uh, but yeah, okay. But my father added in a hasty scribble the possibility that Aragorn did indeed love Eowyn and never wedded after her death. Oh, great. Okay, so we're going to have the worst of both worlds, right? We're not going to have them marry each other. Uh, we're going to have her die in battle instead. Um in some presumably, you know, some obviously like dramatic uh, and heroic way, but still she's going to die. And then Aragorn is going to like die at a, a, like a, a, a bereaved, you know, bachelor for the, <laughs> for the rest of his life. Right. Um, 
And yeah, Jennifer's like, yeah, the end of the line of Elendil. Great. Yeah. And, and that's kind of odd, right? To, to, yeah. So I'd like that, that, that version, the first two versions make sense, right? To have them get married and cement the whole Rohirrim Elendil thing makes perfect sense, right? To have there no not be a love interest at all, like let's cut out the mushy stuff and just make her Amazon woman who dies heroically in battle. That's cool too. I like that. Uh, that that can really work. But this neither one nor the other thing that we're getting at the end that seems like that seems like I mean clearly that's going to satisfy that's going to satisfy nobody, right? Um, yeah, Steve and I agree. Books should have good endings. Uh, agreed. That doesn't sound like a good one. Um, now, Christopher is going to drop the bomb. In like the last paragraph of this whole book, Christopher is going to drop the bomb. The reference 2617, remember this is where he said he's got to change the prophecy, right? The alter the message of Galadriel if he doesn't fall in love with Eowyn, Right. The reference is to the page in the fair copy manuscript of the White Rider where appears Galadriel's message to Aragorn delivered to him. So we get it again. Um, Bearer of my greenstone, in the south under snow, a greenstone shalt thou see. Thou shalt see. Look well, Elfstone, in the shadow of the dark throne, then the hour is at hand that long hath awaited thee. And then Christopher just interprets it for us. The greenstone in the south was born on Theoden's brow, beneath his white hair. And it was Eowyn, who would stand in the shadow of the dark's throne within his hall. Really? Seriously? That's So the green stone was going to be the sign to him that he's... So her message is all about Eowyn. Right? What is Aragorn's fate? Right? The hour is at hand that long hath awaited thee. Turns out to be when he meets his wife? Right? That's the hour at hand that long hath awaited thee. Now remember, that's not as trivial as it sounds because, of course, his marrying Eowyn has already been connected, right, with his becoming king, right? So... That all seems to kind of work together, so it's like one step on that process towards kingship, right? Uniting the houses of Lindo and Rohan, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so it's a prophecy of love, Brandon, exactly, right? So Jennifer says, Legolas, uh, is, his death is foretold, and Aragorn's, Aragorn is, 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 his marriage is foretold. But Jennifer, right, it's, Specifically, right, it's the message of Galadriel turns out to be something like a scavenger hunt clue for his wife, right? Uh, So when you see a green stone under snow, right, right, you following me, right? Then look well, Elfstone, in the shadow of the dark throne, you'll see something, and it's Eowyn that he sees in the shadow of the dark throne. Then the hour is at hand that long hath awaited thee. Right? So this is uh, this is like the elvish treasure map to like to meet his to meet his wife. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Brandon. 
this does sound like uh, uh, Goadriel running a sort of prophetic dating service here. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's... I'm I'm completely gobsmacked by the end. That it's the last paragraph in the book. Christopher's just like, oh, FYI, here's what this poem means, uh, and it's it's kind of stunning, really. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Go Adriel playing matchmaker. Um, Kind of amazing. So it. We now keep in mind this explanation is all just in the context of explaining why he has to alter the message of Goad. Goadro can't give him this message, right? We're not going to get the, the, uh, uh, the. You know, meet your future wife message from Goadriel if we're going to cut out the love story, right? So that's why clearly we have to alter that. Um, but um yeah yeah um and Kate you're right Goadriel is still going to get her matchmaking mojo on, right, in the Appendix A, right? She Remember, she does kind of throw them together uh, in Lothlorien when they have their meeting where they really uh, are betrothed. Um, so that element isn't going <clears> to <throat> totally go away, though, of course, it's no longer going to be a uh, premarital prophecy that she's making uh, in her message there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Stephen says, so was Aragorn waiting for Eowyn specifically without knowing her, or is Aragorn just waiting for the first cute girl to come along? Uh, well, no, no, this is like the, remember, this is the hour uh, uh, clearly, this is this is destiny. This Oh, sorry. This is destiny. This is not uh, um, this is not just uh, uh, you know, Aragorn cruising uh, for chicks, right? Uh, the hour is at hand that long hath awaited thee, right? This is this is doom. Um, and th- remember, that's that. <clears throat> remember back to the tone of doom in the passage, right? And then, for the first time, in the light of day, Aragorn saw Eowyn, right? Um, and then his doom falls upon him, right? And that's the first step of this other doom, the greater doom of uh, him being becoming king, right? Today. Eowyn's boyfriend, tomorrow the crown, right? That's 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 pretty much how it works. Um so I'm I don't wanna <clears throat> prejudge the vote by the electorate, but the electorate has been pretty consistent in continuing our march through the history of Middle-earth, it would seem a little bit strange to stop now between Volume 7 and Volume 8 of the history of Middle-earth. Uh, so I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that the War of the Ring is likely to uh, um, 
is likely to uh, be one of the two that we elect uh, and that we will go on and uh, that we will go on and do. So uh, it's going to be very interesting, right, to see how the Aragorn and uh, and Eowyn relationship develops. And uh, where's Arwen anyway? And when does she come in? Right. Obviously, something for uh, um, something uh, for us to be looking for in the War of the Ring. Uh, so thank you very much, everybody, for joining me. This has been this. This concludes our discussion of the treason of Isengard. Uh, I have really enjoyed our uh, what four or five months uh, looking at this book together. Our sixteen sessions. Um, so don't forget, schedule wise, uh, two weeks off now. At least two weeks off. Two or three depends on how quickly we can get things together. Uh, we'll start either in the last Wednesday in November or the first Wednesday in December. Um, and uh, keep an eye out on our website, the Signum blog, um, at uh, just the uh, on the on the the front page there of signumuniversity.org. I'll also be posting about it on uh, uh, social media as well, so uh, you'll be able to you'll be able to find that. So yeah, and so no class for the next two weeks, definitely, uh, and and then we'll begin whichever. But it's not going to be the War of the Ring. I we know that for sure because that's the rule. Um, it's going to be either American Gods, uh, uh, the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, to say nothing of the Dog or. Uh, uh, Lamort Darthur. So one of those will be the next thing that we do. Uh, go out there and vote. If you have voting rights and you haven't voted yet, go vote. So uh, thanks, everybody. I look forward to uh, joining you for another adventure soon. Thanks, everybody. Bye.